Every Tuesday morning, uh, a group of us gather together to look at texts from the Bible set for that coming Sunday in the lectionary. Uh, We don't usually look at the lectionary texts on Sunday, but we look at them on a Tuesday. Some weeks, the readings all come together, and it's a joyful occasion. It's full of encouragement. We see the threads and the connections and how God is speaking so clearly. And other weeks, it's not quite like that, is it? (laughs) We scratch our heads a bit and we wonder quite what to do with the verses that we've been offered. This past Tuesday had some interesting readings, which included our Old Testament reading today from Jeremiah 32. And you know, as we studied and shared together, in that moment on Tuesday morning, I felt God begin to speak to me, and that text got under my skin. And I sensed God might be speaking through it, and it might be something for our whole church community to ponder on. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And so as we embark on that, let us pray. Gracious God, in these moments... We pray that the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together here this morning would be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now I realise, I promise I realise, that the book of Jeremiah is nobody's idea of a page-turner. It's not a jolly book. It records the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah and was written down by a man named Barak. Now, Jeremiah was a son of the manse. His father was a priest named Hilkiah. He was born, we're told, in a place called Anathoth, which is a couple of miles north of Jerusalem. His whole life was devoted to the work of a prophet, and his ministry fell relatively neatly into two bits. For the first 40-odd years... He was warning the nation of Judah that they were on the wrong track, that they'd wandered from God, that they'd wandered from who God had called them to be, and that as a result, calamity and judgment are on their way. Jeremiah, in all sorts of ways, called the people to return to God. Uh, That's the main thrust of the message. In fact, the word return appears 47 times in the book of Jeremiah. It's a thread that runs right the way through the text. And then in the second section, for ten years or so after that, Jeremiah was ministering to the broken people left after the aftermath of the defeat at the hands of the mighty Babylonian Empire. Calamity and judgment had indeed come to their land. And so whatever else we do or don't understand about the prophet Jeremiah, I think it's reasonably clear that at least what he was asked to do was not an easy task. The people didn't want to hear what he had to say, and they didn't return to God. Jeremiah got to the end of his ministry, the end of his life. There was no tangible growth. There was no fruit. There was no positive key performance indicators even for Jeremiah to point to. The people didn't return to God, their land lies in ruins, their lives were in tatters, and it was bleak. They were stunned. They were heartbroken. How could this happen to us? And I suspect that Jeremiah, in his more unguarded moments, spent the final ten years of his life resisting the urge to say, I 
told you this was going to happen. And as we come to this part of the book in chapter 32, the end is in sight. This is a few months before the country is finally defeated, after years of battles and warfare and being under siege. Jeremiah, we're told, is going to end up confined and imprisoned. And here's the thing. In the face of all the trials, and in the face of all the uncertainties about the future, would the nation ever be free again? Will they always, now and forever, be captives, be slaves, be at the beck and call of the Babylonians? Will they be erased from history? In the face of all the uncertainties about the future, Jeremiah does something significant and symbolic living out his message for all to see. It wasn't just what he said, it was how he lived his life. Did you notice what it was in the reading? Jeremiah goes back to his hometown to sort out things prior to being imprisoned, and he ends up buying land from his cousin. In this moment where nothing seemed certain and everything seemed bleak, Jeremiah purchases property. Now, I am far from an expert on the buying and selling of property, but I'm pretty sure that purchasing it at a time that the nation is about to go under is not a smart economic move. This land is going to be occupied. It's not going to be worth much, and Jeremiah might never see it again. It could be captured. It could be given to others for a long time, if not for all time. Jeremiah is buying land that is under attack. Jeremiah is buying land at a time and in a place that seems strange and seems foolish. But Jeremiah is also doing something incredibly important. He's not finally gone to the zoo. He's not a little bit confused. In fact, he is remarkably clear-headed. This is the act of someone who has hope for the future. Jeremiah has hope for the future and he has faith and trust in God. Even if he won't see it come good in his own lifetime, even if he won't personally benefit, he believes that God can and God will bring change. It's like the conversations we have about looking after the environment. Yes, we could stop paying attention to that now and it might help our bills for five minutes, but actually... The action we take now is going to make a difference for generations to come and generations after that. And that's why it's important. And even if we won't personally benefit, that's not a metric on which God views the future. Instead, verse 14 and 15 of the reading. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last for a long time. We're going to be able to prove in 300 years that this belongs to our family, right? For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. It will change. It will be restored. God will see to it. God will bring change. Jeremiah isn't offering empty words to the people around him. He's showing them how to live when you have faith and a hope for the future. He's investing in the future. For there will be a time when houses, fields, and vineyards will be in this land. He sees the destruction, the difficulties, the years of bleak uncertainty, and he sings hallelujah anyway. He believes, as I believe, in God's faithfulness. 
and that with God the future is always bigger than the past. The prophet Habakkuk puts it like this, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour, for the Sovereign Lord is my strength. And in our reading from the New Testament, from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we see some similar things and themes emerge. As he talks to these new Christians about how Jesus changes everything, about how we should live, he knows that he's speaking to people whose lives haven't become magically easier because they've decided to follow Jesus. One might even argue their lives have become inexorbitantly more difficult because they've decided to follow Jesus. And they're having to rethink everything. And yet despite the opposition and despite the confusion, the difficulties and the questions... Paul writes to them about celebrating in the midst of sufferings. The world is not yet as God would have it be, but there is always hope. And there is always hope because of Jesus Christ. It's important to note that I think he isn't saying we celebrate our sufferings, but rather we celebrate in our sufferings. That's quite an important distinction to make this morning. We're not glad that life is tough. But when it is, we can still be glad because Paul says God can and does use those times to plant hope deep in us as we persevere and our character is shaped and formed. And I know that you know this. So many of you here this morning can tell the stories of how our faith has been deepened and we have been shaped and we have been moulded by some of the most difficult times in our lives. Countless churches and organisations can look back at difficult periods in their own history and see how in those moments they learnt new things about God and about themselves that they wouldn't have learnt otherwise that are now crucial to who they are now. That's not to say that it's easy. And it's not saying that the difficult periods will be short. But it is saying that there is always hope. Jeremiah's life wasn't easy. The period of exile and potential extinction was not short. But Jeremiah steadfastly held on. He trusted that God would make a way where there seemed no way could be found. And so all that being said, I wonder how we might answer our two fundamental theological questions this morning. What kind of God and so what? How would you answer those questions today? As we look at the message and the story of Jeremiah and the letters of Paul, I think we see that they have hope for the future because they believe that God is faithful and that God is loving and kind. God's in the business of restoration and reconciliation. And if God is like that, might we be willing to set our mind on heavenly things, to lift our eyes to the bigger horizon, and trust that God has a future worth investing in and committing to? As ever, we see all the truths most clearly in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not that this was a story of great success. It's easy to forget. A week after we saw billions of people watching a church service at Westminster Abbey, but Jesus didn't see any of the grandeur or power during his life here on earth, and nor did he seek it. Just like Jeremiah, Jesus' message, Jesus' teaching, didn't lead to the whole nation in that moment returning to God. But it did lead to the whole earth for all time 
being reconciled to God, as he took the sin and shame of the world on the cross, and as he emerged from the tomb on the third day, humble and victorious, scarred but alive. Jesus is really clear throughout his life about the cost of following him. He doesn't want anyone, including any of us, to be misled about the life of faith. Jesus' message about the kingdom of God was one that had and has the power to change things. But that's precisely why lots of people, especially those invested in maintaining the status quo, weren't happy with him. It's the same reason why the people weren't happy with Jeremiah. We heard in our reading where they said to him, why do you prophesy like this? We don't want to hear it. That is a tough thing for us to listen to. We're okay as we are. History shows us that no one tangles with the powers that be and comes away unscathed. Being a follower of Jesus, quite frankly, should put a significant spike in our life insurance premiums. The gospel is not a successful story. It is not a story of success. Instead, it is a story of redemption. Because, friends, not everything that glitters is gold. And not everything that seems to all intensive purposes to have failed or is limping along is on the wrong track. You see, our redemption comes from the marginal, pain-wrecked, humiliating place that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the narrower path and the more painful decisions are the ones which Christ is most present in. God often meets us in unlikely people and in unlikely places, but God will meet us This much we can be sure of. Christianity doesn't need big platforms and powerful people for God to be glorified. God in Christ gave up the platform and set aside the power. This is glory revealed in its fullest. And resurrection means, and here's the thing to remember if you remember nothing else this morning. Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. And so on this day when we bring our gifts to invest in something of our future together, we declare that we do it open-eyed. We see the challenges and the questions that the present poses and that the future will continue to pose, and we say hallelujah anyway. On the day that we bring our gifts together, we remember that the God we worship does resurrections and fresh starts and new chapters and blank pages. We celebrate that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, love always wins, even if it doesn't look like that for you in this moment. We commit to helping each other remember that God is here and that God is good, that God is with us and that God is for us. And on the good days and on the other days, may that be.